got really noisy. Is it my fan? <laughs> okay, right. Your your microphone was picking up noise until you spoke, and then it. Ah, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, so we were talking about high culture, and uh, how it's different from Western culture in in one respect, and that that distinction with real difference has to do partially with the fact that the high culture is a very ancient culture and that things get established, hierarchies get established and um, uh, with within able to connect new things together, it's still a network and that network structure is is quite complete in the sense that Generally, the mentality of the Thai people is to learn to fit into their network position happily. To where in the Western mentality, we look at it uh, more as our network looks like a hierarchy or a pyramid. And the mentality is you've got to climb the pyramid. You've got to better yourself not by fitting in happily, but to better yourself by getting something from the outsider, from the network. Okay. So, uh, what we call social climbing or status seeking or uh, uh, asking for a raise or even getting a higher degree so that we can get higher on that ladder. And some learn that they can climb the ladder by lying to people. And so they begin to climb the ladder that way. They wind up being politicians. <laughs> and uh, they get very high on what they think is a ladder, with or um, higher up on the pyramid. And so this is a basic distinction within the, between the Thai society and the Western society. And so uh, by you fitting in <clears throat> into your neighborhood, your family, your situation, the way that you are, kind of plugs you into that network. Mm -hmm. And so your job is going to be to kind of learn to fit into that network that you naturally find yourself in and if you look at it for that way and rather than uh, trying to make things better or to improve things you got to learn to see the way things really are <laughs> mm. and as we have and so in fact you can see that Buddhism in a way has has uh, um, let us say sunk into the Thai culture at such a deep level as this, so that uh, the the Thai people. This, have you ever heard? This is called the land of smiles. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't think it is true anymore, but it was when I first came here. I said, you know, when when you see the the people who sell food on on the the sides of the street and everything like that, when you when you do business with them, when you buy their food, they're really happy, you know. Uh -huh. Really happy people living qu quite simple lives. Um, the, what you were mentioning earlier 
um, something caught my attention pretty pretty early on, um, a long time ago. The phrase um, to to deal the cards you've been dealt with. Do you think that can uh, to kind play of the cards you're dealt? Deal the deal with the cards. Play with the cards you've been dealt with. Yes, exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than trying to to find something else, make the most of what you've already got. Right, and what I'm uh, pointing out that this is really deeply buried into the uh culture of learning to be satisfied with how things are, which is actually a teaching of the Buddha. Play the cards you've been dealt with, and the and the emphasis is upon play. It doesn't matter what cards you've dealt. Let's play. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, that also takes us out of uh, the complaining mentality, looking for something better, wanting to make changes to things. So, in fact, uh, what you can see is that um, with some suggestion, with some, how do you say it, Um, exceptions, with some exceptions um, that we we can point out and talk about, generally the Thai people are quite accepting. In, in, let us call it in the world of politics, that they kind of keep one eye on it, but so far so good. (laughs) I mean, um, there was actually a military coup. It actually happened twice in a row, one from Jackson Chenoweth and then with uh, a Yenglot Chenoweth. But uh, the military took over and put them both out of office, and by and large, the Thai people gave them a big yawn. (laughs) <laughs> and when America and all of the governments and the news people all over the world, when they hear military coup in Thailand yet again, they say, oh, no, what a messed up society that is. <laughs> <laughs> and yet in Thailand, there's barely a ripple. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, and, and part of that has to do with overall and in general, um, the Thai government is benign. It's a benign dictatorship, army-driven benign dictatorship, and then they give a, a, a parliament building to the people who want to play politics. And if they misbehave, they'll get slapped. <laughs> 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 but otherwise, let them go. All right. And so... The, the system just kind of rolls along, and it has been rolling along for quite a while. Uh, so each individual type from childhood is taught to recognize that you don't have to put up with the bullshit. You can simply see the bullshit and laugh at it the way we are. And so this is the kind of a cultural thing that you can see. It's, it's not there 100%. 
that there is anger and upsetness and uh, resentments and things like that, that some of them are very, very old. An example of that is, is that if you really want to get a few people in Thailand worked up, go to the Northeast. Because Northeast Thailand was actually taken from Laos, who knows when. And so you can find at least enough of that to where you can. And that's exactly what happened. I was there to see the burned out uh, uh, building that uh, Taksin Chenawat's folks had done. Um, uh, red shirts, yellow shirts, have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So the guy people can get worked up, but you've got to put a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of propaganda and a lot of t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> to get them worked up. And so I say that in response to the things in the U.S., that things are getting worked up there, too. But it's all because everyone in, the, in America is dissatisfied. They can't find, each person cannot find his station in life and fit in and be well and happy. Mm. And so when I, when I describe it like that, you can understand, well, of course there's something between 25 and 50,000 Buddhas in Thailand. They've got really good soil here for that. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. So if you're, I assume, now that you're doing um, all of the things that are done uh, in order to make your uh, vacation in Thailand, let us say, at least semi-permanent, <laughs> then um, learning to fit into this culture is a magnificent Dhamma lesson. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so letting the wife be the boss, let her be, agree with her, not only agree with her, but congratulate her for how smart she is and what mm. wise decisions she makes and how grateful you are for her to take care of you. And that'll help you fit right into place. Mm. Okay. Where, where it is, yeah. where it basically you give her um, all of the duties and responsibilities, which is what her family and the whole Thai community would, uh, they would expect that from a Thai boy. And when they see it from a Parang who figured out how to do that early, they'll really like that. That would be a major step in the right direction. Mm. And the and the on let us say on a slightly different level but the same topic is, is to pay a special <laughs> closing the door secret. <laughs> Opening the window. <laughs> ah, okay. And that is just to pay special attention to all the old ladies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they all seem uh, very, very happy. 
No, I'm talking about you are there to make them even more happy. Uh. <laughs> okay, go and bow and pay respect to them and see and and tell them how happy you are to see them and how marvelous this family is, you know, that kind of thing. That will help you fit in exactly. You know, to pay attention and to show that female hierarchy that you you pay tribute to it. And that will help that will help cement your own internal system as well. Did I tell you the story about Amula Nasruddin? No. The Mullah Nasruddin story that goes with this, and I learned this in India before I was ever around Buddhism to find out that it's not just cultural, but it's a teaching of the Buddha also. But uh, Nasruddin uh, was, was a Mullah. Uh, I don't know where he was, possibly in India. But the, the book about him is a joke book. But every one of them it has a moral to the story. Okay, it's sort of like Islamic's um, uh, Aesop fables. Yeah. Okay, so his friends are asking him, uh, what does he do? And he says, well, I do all the important stuff, and I leave all of the unimportant stuff to my wife to take care of. And they says, oh, well, what, what are the unimportant things that you let your life take care of? He says, well, things like what house we live in, where we live in, what clothes we wear, what clothes I wear, uh, uh, how the money is spent. That's the kind of stuff my wife takes care of, the whole house. Nothing important. <laughs> And they said, then, well, what is it that you take care of? And the answer is, oh, well, I ask some really important questions. Like, does God exist? <laughs> and and how, do, how can a man actually be noble and happy? These are the kinds of questions that, I, that are big things. I only work with big things. And I let my wife take care of all the little things. <laughs> <laughs> Now, is there a moral in that story or what? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's actually more of an Asian mentality. I think that it's that mentality uh, survives uh, in, in certain pockets of Islam, in certain pockets of Hindu, as well as uh, some of the deeper pockets in Thailand. Mm. is to let this be a matriarchal society intentionally rather than forcing it to be a patriarchal society where the men want to run everything. I think the first thing that you said to me about this was that, that the uh, you noticed that the, it was the mothers who disciplined the children. Yeah. Okay. That's true in other cultures also. By the way, it's not necessarily true because of newer cultural things, but in general, in the old days, the Jewish society was also a matriarch 
civil society, and in fact, they even run it through the bloodline of the mother. Was it you? Yeah, was it you who said, you know, uh, if there's a a Jewish mother and maybe a Christian father, then the the, the children will be Jewish, right? Is that you who said that? I might have, because it is yeah. true, but it's also common knowledge, so you could have easily heard it someplace else. Maybe, yeah. But the part of the reason with all of that is is that the Jewish culture had historically been a matriarchal society, and these are some of the uh, remaining elements of it. And that didn't fit in with the idea of what a culture should be like in Europe. And that was part of the reason why the Jews were shunned, as well as the fact that they were shrewd and smart. And they needed to be that because they were shunned. Interesting things happen like that in, in culture. But this is an, an interesting point that if you can come to understand that, yes, it's, it's not only cultural in Thailand, but it's to your spiritual advantage that it's set up that way. In a way, you're kind of expected to start hanging out at the Wat. What else you got to do with your time? I know that you're a teacher, and that's expected and part of the deal, but uh, I'm talking about in the sense of rather than having household duties or whatnot in, in that regard. So yeah, hanging out. At t- By the way, did you ever get to that that watch? That yeah, we were talking yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's very very uh, peaceful. Uh, kind of wooded. What um, the tunnels were very very nice. The tunnels. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Talking about old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, there were there were some very interesting. Um, in English as well, um, I think I think on the website they were called talking trees, or so basically trees with uh, signs on them with some kind of dhamma saying or or some kind of wis- nugget of wisdom in them. They were they were pretty good. Now that actually started at Wat Suen Mok. In fact, it started with one monk, and now it's very very common for Wat to have trees that are in the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa tradition to do that. Mm. To post little Dhamma sayings all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's Were very they, nice. It's, it's quite far away from, from where I'm living, but it, it was nice to go there. Oh, how far? Um, 20 to 30 minute drive or something. Okay. Yeah. There, there, are, there are local watts here, but um, I've never actually been, I've never actually been to the closest watt to me. You could, it, the next time that you go, uh, uh, what's the name of the what? Uh, um, they call it Thun or something. Mok. No, the what that Mok. you that you went to. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm getting them mixed up, actually. Hold on. Uh, what uh, Umong. What Umong. Umong. Yeah. Umong. Okay. All right. 
So the next time that you go to Wat Umong, you can tell the, the monks there or someone who speaks English um, where you live and what is a Wat that's close by that they would recommend that you go to. Ah, that's a good idea. Because Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the, uh, let us call it the non-magical noble Dhamma <laughs> is basically getting more and more widespread in Thailand. That's good. And, and this, this Wat in Chiang Mai has been associated with him. Uh, and by the way, Back in the back of all of this is a another very famous monk in Thailand. His name is Achan Panyananda. Have you heard of him? I think so. Achan Panyananda is the abbot of Wat Chulapatan in Nornteberi, a suburb of Bangkok, and this is possibly the largest Wat in the world in the sense of maybe a thousand monks or so. I'm not quite sure how big it is, so don't mm. quote that. But it's a big, big watt, which means it's well-funded. And this was one of the watts that first got a crematorium before they did it the old way. But when in Bangkok they needed crematoriums, wow, were they just popular at this watt. They were like doing uh, a, a funeral every two hours, all day long, every day. And so um, they needed all of these monks to do it. So this was a good place, in, in fact. So the monks would rotate through doing all of these funerals so that every funeral would have about nine monks. And in that regard and other things, this what got money. Oh, they got money. So this is the source of the restoration money of the Wat, uh, uh, Ut, <laughs> Wat Utong, Wat Utong. The one I went to? Yeah. Wat Umong. Umong, okay. Wat Umong. The, and that they will have some photos and pictures of uh, Achan Panyananda there also. Mm. He will be prominently featured along with the Dasa. And so... Uh, Achan Panyananda also is uh, well regarded in the uh, what uh, Atamayata Rama, or we call it short, is uh, what Atam uh, in Seattle. They have in their website a photo of Achan Panyananda on full display, hmm. which indicates that Achan Panyananda had the money that got into Seattle possibly for the property. Uh, Robert says that upon his research, that it, they, they spent $3 million on property in Seattle. So where did $3 million come from? I know where. Mm. <laughs> I almost remembered one of us uh, signs from the Talking Trees, but I can't exactly remember the, the exact words. It was something like... Um, uh, the important things of giving or the wordless wordless deeds of giving are dealt with by money or something like that. I can't remember what it was now. Something like that. <laughs> oh, okay. 
I don't I don't recognize the quote. Uh, maybe, maybe I can Google that one and get get back to you. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can uh, send that to me later after the call is finished. So, welcome to Thailand. Thank have you. Have you talked to Robert? No. I'll send you his link because he's not. Okay. Uh, or, uh, have, have I already? He's, no, you have not. He's a good friend for you. He's close to you. I'm not sure how far, but he is south of Chiang Mai in uh, uh, Luang province. Ah, okay. Okay, so he he is south of you, but uh, you guys could be friends. He's he has excellent Thai uh, reading writing skills. Mm. And I'm not sure been, of Luang province, actually. I'm not sure I've got the maybe, name right. Maybe 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 if I'm maybe if I'm lucky it's Lampoon. Lampoon is the right word. Exactly. Yeah, Lampoon is very very uh it's actually older than Chiang Mai, I think, and has lots of uh ancient relics there, so I've heard. Apparently it's worth a visit. Great, great. Okay. Well, do you have any questions? About Dhamma. Oh, um, nothing pressing, no. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure of where for you to. <clears throat> go in the Dhamma any more so than what we've been talking about today, because you and yeah. I have actually covered Anapanasati, um, but we probably haven't covered yet uh, either uh, the uh, depths of the Ticca Samuppada nor uh, the path itself. But I think we have talked about the structure of how all of this stuff fits together. Yeah, yeah, I think we went through um, maybe the first, I don't know, maybe the first five links. Oh, the five aggregates. Actually, we did we did talk about the five aggregates, but I, I was I was uh, I was meaning in Patija Samapada in uh, you know ignorance leads to uh, formations, formations leads to, and so on. <laughs> I think I think we did we did talk about it a little bit, but then you said, "Okay, we'll learn about the uh, the other stuff another time." Okay, all right. So, actually, the five aggregates are right there in Patitra Samuppada. Generally, it's taught that the five aggregates are an introduction to Patitra Samuppada, in the sense that. The five aggregates we uh, we look at, understand, figure out, um, and get a mental um, understanding of how these things work. To understand that in fact there is no um, unity or wholeness or self 
or anything in there that what we think of as a self is a personality. And so we begin to understand how personality is manufactured or invented. So when we talk about the five aggregates, we most uh, possibly the most difficult thing for the student to understand is, is that Sankara is not the self. And that we can see that from the sense of the feelings that are arising in this moment are not me. Or uh, we could say it, there is anger or this anger can be seen or haha, I see you anger, but I am not the anger. If we're in common language, when most people are just living their lives asleep, they'll say I'm angry. If they're at least awake enough to say that, that, that they're angry, mostly they'll just say in a big up, I'm not angry. Mm. And so then they're really asleep to it, which means that they really are so deep into the anger they don't even know it. It's completely consumed them. But when we come to at least to the state of saying, I am angry, now we're waking up to it, but we're still stuck in it. But when we say, I see you, anchor, we can come out of it. And so this is part of the reason that we want to understand this issue associated with these five aggregates, that I am not the body. And I change the way that the body is. Can't be young this year and old next year. Can't be taller. Can't be female. A lot of people try, but they... Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a joke in there someplace that I dare not say. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we try to make the body ours. And look at the number of industries that are associated with that. The cosmetic industry. Painting the face to make it more beautiful. Or body wash or whatever. But we always are trying to make the body better so I am better. Have you noticed that moisturizers sold in Thailand, about half of them have uh, added whitener in them? I know, mm. and I don't know where that comes from other than the sale of that to tell the girls that there is something that you can do to make yourself more beautiful. So it's a, it's a big lie. Because mm. a girl it probably is going to be more beautiful brown than she is slightly less brown. <laughs> But they're sold that. You're exactly right. That's part of the ordinary culture. And that uh, um, it's catered to the, the fact that people think that they are the body. And uh, separation from that through kind of understanding will get us to also understand we're not the feelings either. That there can be anger, but it is not me who is angry. If I can wake up, I can say, nope, I'm not, I'm not the anger. The same thing, then, is true about consciousness. Consciousness itself is a mechanism. 
it, it turns on and off depending upon conditions. But it does that uh, without a whole lot of control. That, for instance, you can't control what your eyes see. Sometimes we try to repaint the picture for what the eyes see or what the eyes see, but we still think of them as my eyes when it's just, they're just doing their job. They don't know whether they're being owned, <laughs> at least intellectually. So uh, how we feel and the eyes and consciousness and what we see and hear and feel and touch and taste is also not me. And what I do with that information through perception so that I turn it into a product I understand is also not me. This is just a mechanism of the mind. And all of this processing that's done is using an old database. Mm -hmm. And this database is called the Sankara, the old stuff. And so... Um, Sometimes, by mistake, we add bad feelings to the mixture when, in fact, the actual reality in the world was no bad feelings. But by the time it gets processed into being something on the inside, now it's got bad feelings added to it. That comes out of the past, old habits. So when we recognize that those things are, in fact, not self, then the curiosity is, well, where does then the self come from? And what is it that is there? And when the self is reborn, how is it reborn? And so this is the beginning of the teaching of Patita Samapada, because we've already been talking about the constituent components. But when we talk about it from the perspective of Patita Samapada, finding that the first element on the list is ignorance, and the second element on the list is Sankara. What that actually indicates is, is that as we got started in life, we started in ignorance. That babies are pretty stupid. I don't know a newborn baby yet that knows algebra. <laughs> or even how to talk. Or even how to feed himself or even stand up and walk to the toilet. He doesn't know anything. He, boy, is an infant stupid. This is basic raw ignorance. And so everything that a child learns, he learns it with this base of ignorance. Every new thing that he learns, he puts it on top of this basic ignorance, which is at the base of everything. And that, that ignorance will always be there. It doesn't matter how many PhDs you get, there's more PhDs to have. Yeah. You'll never get to the end of it. Humans cannot get to the end of human knowledge. And they probably couldn't 100,000 years ago either. It was already too big for humans by then. It, and not only that, but how are they even going to gather that knowledge? <laughs> Which is another thing. So the whole point then is, is that we start off in childhood ignorant. And so the things that we learn, we learn through ignorance. That's an important point. Because that means that as an adult, I do not have to process with the old ignorance. I can process the way things are now. 
Don't have to use the old feelings to determine how to feel. Don't have to use it that way. But that's the way that I did it when I was a kid. I learned it in ignorance. I went along to get along. I did what I was told to do. I didn't like it very much, but I did what I was told to do. Sometimes I failed at it, and then everybody makes me feel bad. They call it punishment. So this is the way. So we we get a lot of downers from our society. And we get into the habit of feeling down. But there's also in that childhood a uh, a bright side, a playful side, a yippee-ki-yo-ki-yo side. But unfortunately, it doesn't fit in very well with school. <laughs> and so that part of the child is mushed out. <clears throat> And part of what we're doing here is to recognize that you have more than one kind of feeling, but one kind has been suppressed that you like, and the other one you've grown into a great big habit of doing, and you don't even like it. But that's the way that you were trained, and you can retrain yourself. That's what it's all about, is um, uh, Ravana. So another way of saying it is, you are not your personality. You are not this old Sankara. And it's kind of hard for us to let go of that. Because then we don't know who we are. Until we recognize that's a really good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Because if we don't know who we are, we can figure that out too. Or a better way of doing it is you can begin to be who you want to be. What you want to be. And what you want to be can be trained. Some things we can't train. There's no way that either one of us is ever going to be a concert pianist, world famous. It's just not going to happen. I missed that opportunity, and so did you. That we can't do. But I can listen to a concert pianist happily (laughs) without being jealous of him. Which is the amazing part, that this stuff in there is really not us. In fact, basically, you can see that this whole method that we're talking about here is basically built already into Thai society. It's kind of baked in to fit into the, the way that you, that, that you find things the way that they are. Okay, so we, uh, the, they accept the way that things are, but they manage then to, because of that acceptance, change the way that they feel so that they don't have to feel the way that they felt when they were jealous. They can come out of the jealousy and come back to the present moment and feel the way that they want to. And this kind of invitation is built into the society here and it's not built into the Western society at all. So these five aggregates are, in fact, not who you are. They're not who any of us are. No one is the body or the feelings or the consciousness or the perceptional system, the putting things together, and the things that we put together with the new nuts and bolts that we get from our senses. But when we start spending more and more of our time putting our new... um, newly forming, manufactured goods of the mind that we can call images or 
of the object of perception or whatever it is. We also have the opportunity of constructing that with what we're getting in from just the outside world. That we no longer need to rely upon our old bad feelings to figure out how to feel. If we can add a new one, we can decide, we can add new information that it's better to feel good than it is to feel bad. So this is actually the deep part of Patika Samupada um, without even talking about it in the more serious form of all 12 steps, that just those first two in relationship to um, the five aggregates is pointing the way for this. Because in fact, consciousness and perception is actually step three and four of the teacher Samapada. But let's go back to um, work with the teacher Samapada step two, that Sankara, to get a load of it a bit because the Buddha breaks it down into three kinds. There is the body. We, through our sports, or through our dancing, or through our karate, or through our baseball, or through our music, we learn to do things with the body that the body kind of retains as a body memory. Some skills we are taught we're able to do. An example of that is the Thai people can't catch anything that's shown to them across the room, nor would they dare toss you something. They will get up and walk over and hand it to you. Why is that? Because baseball was never a part of Thai society. <laughs> and it's not polite because in their mentality, throwing something to someone is not what is in their uh, mentality. It's always throwing something at someone. Okay, and so it, they'll, uh, that's, a, that's kind of an issue with, uh, with, with Thailand until we have to remember, no, the Thai way is you stand up, you take it across the room, and you hand it to them. It's quite impolite to throw things. Uh, but yet in our culture, it's completely acceptable. But what we're looking at is, is that we can see that, uh, that we can recreate the way that we think about things, that we're not built solid, that uh, the personality is not fixed. Now, another thing that I have begun to talk about is actually uh, this thing, perception, has the poly word of namarupa. And consciousness has the, uh, the word vinya, and we associate consciousness in this level as the sense organ. So the sense, what is sense, the rupa, and the sense organ grabs that data and brings it in for processing. The processing is actually going to change it from the actual rupa on the outside into a name or a labeled visual object. We're putting a handle on it, so to speak. That nama rupa phase is where we get the labels from is out of our old Sankara basket. And so we create something. 
that created mental image now is called salayatana in uh, uh, reference to uh, Paticca Samapada. But in other suttas, it actually spells out the distinction between external senses and internal senses. So the external senses is going to be the eye, the ear, the nose, the touch, uh, the deep touch, all of those things uh, to where with uh, the salayatana is going to be the internal representation of that. So it would be our visual images or the things that we hear. And so this can also be understood to be a different kind of consciousness. This is, though, not sense consciousness. This is the consciousness of knowledge or realization or mentalization. I got a sneaky word there, realizing, because we really do cannot, we cannot realize anything. When I see that tree, if I realized it, I'd have a tree growing out of my skull. We cannot realize that. <laughs> but I can mentalize that tree in the sense of bringing it inside and remembering what it looks like and its features and forms and things like that. And mm. Then I can take that mental image. Well, it's compare imagining it has the word image in it, right? To bring yeah, an image to it. Yeah. Bingo. <laughs> mm. Exactly. This is how the mind works. And that image or that imagination is what affects us. Not the actual tree. It's our imagination of the tree that grabs us. Isn't that amazing? We do not live in the real world. We live a half a second after the real world at best. <laughs> And you can see that when they time things with like racers or uh, people getting a driver's license test or whatever. What's your reaction time? Guess what's the very, very best reaction time? Oh, I don't know, like two seconds? <laughs> no, no, it's two seconds. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, two seconds. That's about it. About two seconds. But the mind can be trained to get faster than that. But it takes training. And, the, and how fast you are in certain games that people play will depend upon whether you lose or die. I mean, you win or die. Like race car driving. You've got to be able to react really quickly, which means that you're not going to do a lot of perception. You're going straight from consciousness to consciousness. Yeah. That's the shortcut, which means we stop processing and we see clearly and react immediately. So this is that uh, one of the ways of understanding this idea that if we can put that into use, or uh, let us say, put it into conceptual ideas in the sense of uh, race car, or how about a gunslinger? You know, the old West, yeah. how fast can they draw the gun? If the average time of people is two seconds, we need to get it down to one. Mm. Or better still, if we've got gunslingers out there that are looking for me at one, maybe I need to be down at point eight. 
And so we keep training and training and training and doing it quicker and quicker and understanding like that. But we can do that also while we're sitting in meditation. We don't need the gun to practice. We can just simply watch the mind in the sense of really staying on top of what it's doing. So that you can connect that uh, uh, thing together and not do so much processing. So that how we feel is based upon real rather than what we've imagined. Now, this is actually referred to uh, generally as the higher jhana, where perception becomes very, very lightweight in the fourth jhana. So it's almost either perception or non-perception, while consciousness itself is not infinite, but it's expanding. It's expansive. It connects without the perception being there until the perception is completely gone and then there's nothing left, which is that highest state of the fourth jhana. But all of this stuff is built right in there to the Paticca Samuppada, except for one thing. These jhana states, though, are not, let us say, well-known or well-practiced, but they do, do exist. And that people can experience that. And when they do, they really understand Paticca Samapada because you're being slapped in the face with it, basically. <laughs> and there we are. But we can, with a sharp mind, understand that, yes, that's the way the mind works. It could not work otherwise. So we really don't have to go to it from the position of being in it. For instance, you do not have to actually jump in the sewer to know that this is a sewer. <laughs> and that's how we want to be able to do it, is, is that we know how the mind works, but I don't have to bring it down to that state. That basically the point that we're really looking for is that that state where feelings arise, that we want to have our... Uh, uh, wisdom at that point of contact in the sense that when um, that salayatana or when that projection arises, when we realize something, that's going to impact us and, and, uh, can, and have an Im impact upon the way that we feel. Okay, the Pali word here is pasa, contact. We do not get contacted by sense contact. It's got to do a whole lot of rigmarole inside the brain before we're finally compacted with, contacted with it. That's the whole thing about reaction time, of why it takes so long for us to react is because our brains are so slow. They only operate at the speed of light, after all. And there's so many trillions of connections in there. What do you expect? <laughs> it's a slow piece of hardware. Um, but if you want something to work really fast, then it needs to be simple like a light switch. All you have to do is flip the light switch, the light comes on. Not too much processing needs to be done. But up here, we got a lot of processing. And the less processing we do, the faster our reaction time will be because the impact comes quicker. But if we do a lot of thunking around and thunking around and thunking around, we really don't know how to feel. 
That's, in fact, the reason why we get caught in that perceptional trap is because we don't like the feeling of I don't know what. So this is an interesting way of pointing out that there are, in fact, three feelings. This is the Vedana in Paticca Samapada, but these three feelings fit absolutely and are tied directly to the second noble truth. What are these feelings? I like it. Very lightweight, I like it. I don't like it. A tiny little displeasurable sensation. Or an absolute feeling that is not categorized as either I like it or I don't like it. And we generally use that feeling as being confused. And so often we'll go, okay, if I don't like the confusion, I'm going to go back and try to figure this out. And here we go, on the end of brain, thinking the same things over again, thinking that we're going to get a new response. <laughs> but um, the way to get a new response is by getting new input, which means now we need to investigate more closely to really figure out what's going on. But if we are stuck in this place uh, of that kind of feeling, you can call it doubt, and it can actually go so far as to become fear. But if we arise to this feeling, if we know what's going on, then we can add joy to it, and to now it becomes a hunt, a search. It becomes a, um, uh, we're, we're curious, we're not confused. That we begin to have confidence that we can find out what it is, and we're on the hunt. Tally-ho, the thought. <laughs> <laughs> and so off we go. This is how we manage that kind of feeling wisely. But most people, when they don't know what to do, they get confused. They, uh, and this happens in meditation a lot, when the mind wanders away. And when they see the mind wandering away, they become confused. I thought I could watch my mind. Something's wrong here. And then they get confused. And then they say, maybe I need a new teacher or we need a different technique or I don't do this very well. It must be something wrong with what I'm doing. And all of these bad feelings, you see, come out of this confused feeling. But if that confused feeling is a wise feeling, then we can say, aha! I caught you. I can see you, Mara. So in this regard, you can see that the practice of Anapanasati is nothing but the practice of Paticca Samuppada. It's the same thing. So we've got another feeling, and that is the feeling of I like it. Now, uh, the story is, and this is a really beautiful story because it just perfectly tells the entire show without giving too much detail. Achan Cha was sitting with Achan Sumedho at a Katen ceremony, and Achan Cha nudged Achan Sumedho before he was an Achan and says, what do you think? Now, it's a Katen, you know, this is where the girls get it all dolled up. They're out husband hopping. One more time. They're out husband hopping. Oh, right. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so they're all dolled up, and Samedo is uh, being challenged by his teacher. Achan Cha says, what do you think? <laughs> and Samedo, knowing Patichu Samupada, comes back with, I like it, but I don't want it. 
<laughs> he is cutting that thing right off at that point, which is where Vicky Buddhadasa says to do it. Be wise to those liking feelings and know when you like something and recognize that you like it, but you don't have to want it. And for instance, in this regard, we can say the girl is so dolled up. Look, she must have $5 in, uh, and three pounds of makeup on. Both American currency. <laughs> yeah. Five pounds of makeup that costs five dollars. And she's gorgeous. But I don't want her. I don't want the makeup. But in fact, that's the reason that girls paint their faces, is because they want to make themselves beautiful and desirable. And desire itself goes beyond I like it. Desirable means I want you to want me. And that is uh, in uh, the, the Pali language, that's what we call tanha. Okay, which is part of the path of Paticca Samapada. One could then go so far as to say that in this shortcut method that... Um, the cause of suffering, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is tanha. Okay. Well, tanha or wanting something, we can go back to that one about the confusion. Basically, the confusion state is uh, we really want desperately to feel safe and secure. And so when we become confused, we're upset. That's another form of tanha, but both of them are grasping and clinging. And another, or, or not, not clinging, just grasping, just wanting, just desiring. Uh, no ownership yet. <laughs> so once that tanha, uh, comes, it can come in one of the three ways. It can come in the form of, I don't know whether I like it or not, but something's got to be done. Or uh, the state of, I don't like it, or I like it. If I like it, normally it's desirable and I want it. If I try to get it, then now I want to own it. I like it. I want it. I got to have it. I've got it. So in this regard, when you see that this is the object of desire, and I've got it. Look at the other part of the arm. What's got it? The whole concept of an owner is, or the concept of ownership, is it that there is something that is owned, and there is something that owns it. So clinging requires a cling or and a cling on. Mm. But you're clinging on, okay? So... Um, the, uh, the clinging is normally in four forms. Even though we have three feelings that arise, those four kinds of feelings generally um, map into the four woeful states and also the four freedoms and also the four instincts. There's a one-on-one -on -one mapping for each one of these all of them based on the four modes of clinging. 
which is basically clinging to rites, rules, and rituals, or silabata, clinging to uh, territory, and the way the humans cling to territory is through our territory of our dears and beliefs. What we think is true, our conceptual territory, as it were. What we think is right and wrong and up and down and back and forth and this political party is better than that political party and this government is better than that government and these people are better than those people and these people are white and those people are black and those people are brown and those people are immigrants and you know this story. This is a an instinct that is built so deeply into the human mindset that it can be easily manipulated by those who are not aware of it. And then the one that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa likes to harp on, and that's the one of materialism, of ownership and control of property, of wanting things. And one of the things is at the bottom of that wanting things is another human being, to own another human being. It's almost like at that level, sex don't matter. But at a little bit deeper level, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> but it's still all about ownership and control. But it's ownership and control of some human, some physical object. This is materialism. And uh, within the concept of uh, the, uh, is, uh, in the Pali, is referred to in the translation as uh, uh, sensual desire or the things that we want, the things of the senses, the things that we can grasp hold of and hold and see and touch, all of those things of the senses that we want. This is that instinct. Now, what's the primary reason for wanting something? Wouldn't it be for protection? For uh. protection. Like a like we want an axe or a sword for protection. Well, if we want something, isn't it for those pleasant feelings? Okay, one of the things that we would want, but the pleasant feeling we want in this case is the pleasant feeling of security. Mm. All right, the pleasant feeling of security we get through feeling safe and we do things to make ourselves feel safe and some people collect weapons other people uh, some guys in in the united states have walls full of weapons gun nuts they call them mm. um but it's basically down at the bottom of it is a feeling of insecurity and the guns then make them feel powerful and and they feel they mistake with power for security Generally, what happens is power is they set themselves up as targets for other power. But if you just feel secure while you're under the radar, then you've got no problem. So we have these three feelings. I like it. I don't like it. And uh, I'm not sure. Leading to grasping and then clinging of these four kinds of clinging. These four kinds of clinging is... Um, the one that we haven't covered yet is the one that I was asking. Why do we get weapons? Why do we build houses? To defend what we think we 
Oh, no, is that the territorial that you already covered? No, no, that's territory, but you can see how deeply they're related is because we're trying to defend myself. Mm. Or we can see it instinctually as self-preservation instinct. This basic mode of clinging, the most basic one of all, is clinging to the self as if myself was more important than anything else. And so the whole quality then of martyrdom is for people to let go of that clinging to the self, recognizing that there's a better good that they can be done. I caution them to use wisdom when making such a choice. (laughs) (laughs) But it can be done. Now, these four modes of clinging that we do also can take us into vocal states. When we cling to something, in fact, that whole clinging part is the becoming or the birth process for the self. And where is the self born? It's born in a woeful state. The woeful state of hell, the woeful state of the hungry ghost, the woeful state of the stupid animal, or the the woeful state of uh, the fearful warrior. So, how does this happen? Well, what really is going on with that hell state is when we get hot. Sometimes we get hot and anxious and uptight and nervous and have to do something and we don't know what to do. We're trapped and we don't know how to get out of it. That's hell. Now I can even go so far as to add the word literally. And then there's the other kind of hell, which is I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I want to get through that door and I keep banging on that door and only I get my arm sore. But I got to get in there. I've got to fix this problem. There's something wrong and I got to fix it. That's hell. Angry, forceful, got to have my way is that feeling of Basically, at the bottom of it is insecurity, but the expression of it and the state of mind and the state of being that we're in is this kind of hell state. But then there's also the kind of state of really wanting something, especially materialism, that we want something and we want it and we want it and we want it and we can't get it. And so the, uh, the picture is like an earthen jar with a very, very tiny little hole at the top. So it's hard to get the, empty, the jar empty if it's full and hard to get it full if it's empty. This is the idea then of the preacher. They keep sucking and sucking and sucking and sucking and never get satisfied. This is because she's so desirable. She painted her face that way. And now we go, and I see the old cartoons uh, with wolf vessels and, uh, and all of that, and uh, uh, they're going crazy with desire. Haven't seen that happen uh, too often in society because the guys are kind of able to hide it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and for them, and each one of us, when we get into that mind state, It's almost like that life sucks. Why does life suck? Because we're sucking. We keep sucking on things and suck and suck and suck and suck. And we stop sucking just long enough to say, well, life sucks. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so we have to learn to, to become satisfied with what we've got. Mm. That everything is okay. Stop being born as this preacher. That's one of these modes of clinging. Um, the next one is associated with the nesting instinct, and the Buddha uh, uses the term silabhata paramasa in the sense of clinging to rites, rules, and rituals. And when we were children, we were told what to do. You've got to do what you're told to do. You live here. Later, the teenager gets rebellious, and daddy will say, if you want to live in my house, you got to do what I tell you to do. This is the way that the nest is set up. But it comes out of an instinct that we can possibly better understand when we call it the herding instinct. That we tend to herd together for safety. That's the whole point of having a nest. The nest is to make the group feel safe. And so if you've got a, um, let us say, a, a nest made of leaves and the whole monkey tribe is in that nest and they've got a baby that just won't shut up, the big daddy might throw that baby out of that nest because it's too dangerous. The whole crowd could get attacked by a big cat. And so you've got to shut up to stay in the nest. You've got to do what you're told to do. And so we're, we are raised from our DNA with that mentality, all the way back to schooling fish. Why do fish school together? For protection. So we are in this protective mode, and how it influences us is, is that we want to protect by going along to get along. And by doing so, we, run, we begin to run, uh, uh, memorize and learn all the rules of society. So all of these rules of society, all the woods, should-haves, good-haves, all of the laws of the government, all of the laws and regulations of the religion, all the laws and rules and regulations at a school or an education, and all the laws and rights, rules, and rituals of business. All of these groups are in, out there competing for who can make you do what they want you to do by following their rules. Like the politicians, they want to get people afraid so that the people will vote for them. On the other side of the table, they want to promise the people a bunch of stuff so that they'll come suck on this politician and vote for him. But politics is all about manipulating. They either manipulate the greedy fools or they, uh, they manipulate the scaredy fools. This, the ones that are scaredy cats, the chickens. And by the way, the chickens are the ones who are the most macho. You'd expect them to. They're trying to protect themselves by showing how macho they are. They're strutting their stuff. And we tend to fall into both of these groups, one or the other, back and forth, because of this quality of tanha. And, uh, and also... Uh, in this relationship to following the rules and doing what we're told to do without understanding that, hey, we're just being manipulated. That the draft animal I saw in India, uh, a donkey who pulled a, um, uh, basically a big, uh, not a big, a six-inch log around, strapped to its back, and he went in a circle, and the other end of the log turned a mill. 
this guy put sugarcane in it. And out comes sugarcane juice, which he sold for 10 baht or 10 rupees of, uh, uh, a glass full, warm, not cold or anything. Uh, but how much you, of that uh, um, sugarcane juice do you think the donkey got? <laughs> None, not a zip, zilch, okay? That's the way to begin to look at the normal working world is that you're being put into service and you're not going to get paid what you're worth. That's the whole world. That's the whole world of that mentality. And when we have that world, we're stuck in that animal state of doing what we're told to do without either getting any joy out of it or the reward that we were promised or somehow decided that we would get. Or maybe we're just trying to avoid being punished. Go along to get along. This is when we're stuck into Silabata Paramasa. For in fact, each one of us is a mighty mouse. We can stand up to that cat and say, I can do what I want to do. I am not a slave under your thumb. But that needs to be done mentally. We have to really say, because in fact, it's not a real cat. It's a cat of our own imagination. It's the cat that we built up. It's the cat of all the rules, rights, rituals, regulations, everything that we've heard in our whole life. And here you are in Thailand, and you need a whole new set of them anyway, so you might as well throw out all of your <laughs> ideas. <laughs> and so this is the whole idea then of these, how these nesting instincts fit into these four modes of clinging, which also fit into then these four woeful states. The last one is fear, which is getting really close to home because fear is actually the basic emotion. That's the, the, the job of the self-preservation instinct is to ring the alarm bell. And that alarm bell is fear. That's the job of the self-preservation instinct. The problem with the self-preservation instinct is too many false positives. Way too many false positives. It's doing its job ten times over. It needs to take a rest. And so we need to stop ringing that bell of alarm, danger, 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 when in fact there's really not any danger at all. Then, in fact, most of the dangerous situations are set up because people already felt danger inappropriately. Mm. So uh, FDR was completely right when he says uh, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, especially fear that has no real good source. It's coming out of our old Sankara, our old memory systems. We feel fear because we're in the habit of feeling fear without really examining it closely. I didn't know that was Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> I, maybe it maybe it was Churchill, one of those dudes. Yeah. Okay, Damarado. Uh Can we continue this letter? Is that okay? All right. Yes. Well, we've just about finished it, but we've done enough of it to where you can understand where, where we're going with this, and we'll mm. finish it off later. Okay. Okay. So welcome to Paticca Samupada. Look closer now. You'll see all of this stuff happen. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tom Rado. All righty, see you. Okay, have a nice day.